Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. If we look for women of color and national women's rights organizations before the 1970s, we don't see very many. Once it was assumed that women of color did not participate in 20th century feminism. Now, of course, that wasn't the case at all. And the historical record is writing itself as historians and other social scientists complicate the narrative of 20th century feminism, arguing that feminisms were at play. Sociologist Benita Roth even titles her book Separate Roads to Feminism when she uh, shows that women of color acted in feminist ways but were not largely involved with national and white feminist organizations of quote-unquote second-wave feminism. Historian Cynthia Orozco has a new book out titled Agent of Change, Adela Slasvento, Mexican-American civil rights activist and Texas feminist, which excavates the importance of a feminist figure of the Mexican-American civil rights movement, adding to the scholarship that unearths the forgotten, quote-unquote forgotten, history of women's importance in major American social movements. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the Mexican-American civil rights movement of the early to mid-20th century and two women important to that movement, Adela Slasvento and Alicia Dickerson Motamayor, whose work to establish women as authoritative figures in the Mexican-American civil rights movement paved the way for the Chicana movement of the 60s and 70s. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. Hey, you! Yes, you! Thank you for listening to this here podcast. And thank you to all of our amazing Patreon supporters Lauren, Edward, Denise, Maddie, Maggie, Danielle, Lisa, Agnes, Iris, Maria, Colin, Susan, Peggy, and Jessica. Thank you for choosing us to support. We are nothing without you. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's very easy to sign up. Check us out at patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. In Cynthia Orozco's book, Agent of Change, she examines the Mexican-American civil rights movement, particularly the League of United American Citizens, or LULAC, which is the oldest Mexican-American civil rights organization in the United States, through one of its unsung leaders, Adela Slas Vento. Slas Vento confronted segregation and Juan Crow and is the only known Tejana with a body of writings, including civil rights essays, opinions in newspapers, and letters to politicians that span across seven decades, from the 1930s to the 1990s. Throughout her cross-generational lifetime of activism, Slas Vento belonged to two social movements, the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement, which began around 1920 and ended around 1960, and the Chicano Movement, which was from the early 1960s up until about 1978. Adela Slas was born in Carnes City, Texas, in September 1901, to Anselma Garza Zamora and David Sloss, who was of German and Mexican descent. As Tejanos, or Mexican Texans living in the Fronteriza, the family spoke Spanish and identified with Mexican culture. Adela's parents divorced, leaving her mother to raise her and three siblings alone. Because of that, she was not able to finish high school until her mid-20s. But the fact that she graduated from high school at all makes her unique already, as it was rare for working-class Mexican heritage women to graduate from high school before roughly the 1950s. But she did, and soon thereafter embarked on a lifetime of public intellectualism. 
After high school, Adela Sloss worked in the San Diego, Texas mayor's office and then for the Edinburgh tax collector's office. Both of these were cities in South Texas before she married Pedro Vento in 1935 at the age of 34. She had a daughter, Irma, in 1938 and a son, Arnaldo, in 1939. The family moved to Corpus Christi, Texas in 1943 and later to Edinburgh, Texas. Sloss Vento began working for the Hidalgo County Jail as a matron in 1949 in order to pay for her children's college educations. And just as a side note, they both went on to get PhDs. So, you know, nice. the, that, that work she was doing was, 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 did a pretty good job. Uh, through, throughout her entire adult life, she was actively engaged in public intellectualism. She wrote extensively about and advocated for Mexican-American civil rights. She also maintained active correspondence with several Mexican-American civil rights activists and founders of the League of Latin American Citizens, or LULAC, Alonzo Perales, J. Luz Sáenz, and J.T. Canales. Though she's largely overlooked, she was honored in the 1960s and 70s as a LULAC pioneer. Sloss Vento operated in South Texas during the era of Juan Crow, where segregation and white supremacy reigned supreme. No Negroes, Mexicans, or dogs allowed signs were visible on restaurants and other businesses where prejudices were most acceptable. The Rio Grande Valley, or the Valley for short, was the heart of American agribusiness and exploitation of Mexican heritage farm laborers. In terms of the economic situation, there was barely an emerging Tejano middle class in the 1920s. Most people in the region were working class, and those people who were farm workers were extremely exploited. Additionally, she was operating in an extremely patriarchal society. As a woman in the time period, working outside of the home was usually in domestic service. In the Valley, most women working outside the home would have been farm workers, and in cities like San Antonio, they would have been in the garment industry, in laundries, or other light industry like maybe pecan shelling or canning. All of these were low-paying jobs. When Adela Sloss started her activism around 1927, there was not a single Latino in the state legislature, and Latina representation of politics was practically non-existent. Most of the mayors, even in the Valley, were not Hispanic, and so there was an absence of decent political representation for Mexican heritage residents. However, even though she's navigating one of the most oppressive eras of our history, she was still able to shine as a public intellectual and confront the lack of political power of Mexican-Americans in South Texas. Slas Vento excelled in journalism, writing numerous op-eds and letters to the editors for various Spanish-language newspapers in the Texas-Mexico borderlands. She also excelled as a writer in that she wrote to numerous politicians, to U.S. presidents, to Mexican presidents to Congress people, and to local leaders. She became a major civil rights leader, not so much through official organizations, but through her writing and her advocacy. But Adela Slas Vento is not only a political actor worthy of historical study, she's also an important figure because she acted as an archivist of the Mexican-American civil rights movement in South Texas. She kept meticulous records of the movement as she saw it, cutting out newspaper clippings about Mexican-American civil rights events and saving them for posterity. She preserved much of her correspondence with important Mexican-Americans in the movement as well, allowing future historians to trace the network of activists working in South Texas and throughout the United States. In 1977, at the age of 75, she wrote the first biographical book about leader Alonzo Perales, who was a founder of LULAC, the third Latino attorney in the state and a U.S. diplomat. Adelis Los Vento's feminism shone through when she assisted burgeoning historian Cynthia Orozco in the early 1980s when Orozco was a student. Slas Vento helped Orozco access her personal archives and also connected her with Alonzo Perales's papers, which were held by his widow, Martha Perales. In believing that women like Orozco were capable of this important historical and archival work, Slas Vento was not only a movement actor, 
but became a conduit for advancing the historical study of Mexican heritage peoples living in the United States. As her assistance helped Orozco launch her career as a preeminent historian of Mexican heritage people in the U.S., Orozco's 2009 book, No Mexicans, Women, or Dogs Allowed, is one of the premier texts documenting Juan Crow and Texas and the rise of the Mexican-American civil rights movement in LULAC. In Orozco's new book, Agent of Change, she says that it wasn't until after 2011 when Alonzo Perales's papers were finally organized and archived at the M.D. Anderson Library at the University of Houston that Orozco realized how essential Adelis Los Vento was to the civil rights movement in Texas. Orozco writes that Slosvento never hinted at her own importance to the movement, but was instead adamant that Perales and other male leaders be highlighted in Orozco's earlier examination of LULAC and the movement. However, once Orozco saw the network of correspondence in the Perales papers that showed the centrality of Slosvento, she was able to see how selfless Slosvento was in her advocacy and her importance to this story. Right. So there's this really important point here to make about advocacy and preserving history, right? Perales mm-hmm. died in 1960. His papers were not, you know, I say properly archived. They weren't put into a, you know, a university archive until 2011, right? It's only at that point that one of the premier historians of the Mexican-American civil rights movement is able to see the kind of previously overlooked connections, right? Um, And so this says a lot about still the dearth of women's voices and people of color, color's voices in the archives, right? And how important it is to preserve those those voices absolutely right so let's dive into the the general history of the mexican-american civil rights movement starting with lulac the league of united latin american citizens was founded in february of 1929 in corpus christi texas by mexican-american men this was an effort to join various mexican heritage civil rights organizations into one national entity in order to act with more authority and strength much in the same vein as the NAACP. By 1940, LULAC chapters had reached into four states in Washington, D.C. Today, it is a national organization with chapters in every state. However, 1929 and the founding of LULAC was not the beginning of the Mexican-American civil rights movement, but instead a continuation of Mexican heritage organizing along the Fronteriza throughout the 1910s and 1920s. Building on the organizing of middle-class Mexican heritage Texans, or Tejanos, movements for basic human rights and dignity were championed by families such as the Idar family, who were very active in Mexican and American politics. Nicasio Idar owned and published the Spanish-language newspaper La Cronica, printed in Laredo, Texas, throughout the 1910s. His son, Eduardo, wrote articles covering the area from Brownsville to the Rio Grande Valley, while his daughter, Jovita, and her brother, Clemente, worked in publishing and as staff writers at various Spanish-language papers throughout South Texas. Clemente Idar was the first AFL organizer for Mexican-Americans in the Southwest. Eduardo Idar was one of the founding members of LULAC. Throughout the 1920s, many different organizations formed to advocate for the rights of Mexican heritage peoples in Texas and the U.S. Two of the groups that formed were named the Order of the Sons of America and the Order of the Knights of America. Everything has to be a sons of or an order of, and it has to have knights in it. Of course. (laughs) That's like every organization. The Order Sons of America, or Orden Hijos de America, OSA, began in 1921 in South Texas by eight young Tejanos, three of whom were World War I veterans. By the OSA's first meeting, 150 men attended the event. By 1929, the OSA had seven chapters across Texas. The OSA formed to, quote, work for the intellectual and social progress of the Spanish-speaking community residing in the United States. Its stated purpose was the, quote, intellectual, musical, educational, and physical developments of its members by the promotion of economic and educational conditions among members and their families. 
The OSA's political agenda included fighting for the right for Mexican-Americans to serve on juries, to sue European-Americans in court, and to use all public facilities. And here's a snippet of the stated purpose of the OSA from its 1922 constitution. We declare it the duty of citizens of the United States of Mexico or Spanish extraction to use their influence in all the fields of social, economic, and political action to secure the fullest possible enjoyment of all rights, privileges, and prerogatives granted to them under the American Constitution. And to accomplish this, we believe that a national organization should exist. Tensions arose among some members of the OSA, which spawned three new organizations, the Order of the Sons of Texas, Club Protector Mexico Tejano, or the Mexico Tejano Protective Club, and the Order of Knights of America. The Order of Knights of America was a splinter group of the OSA, which formed when some younger members left the OSA in San Antonio to form their own organization. These younger men, including John C. Solis, one of the original founders of the OSA and later a founder of LULAC, wanted more direct action and freedom from the political machines running South Texas. Attorney Alonzo Perales and school teacher J. Luz Sainz, among others, attempted to merge these and other organizations at a meeting in Harlingen, Texas in 1927, known as the Harlingen Convention. 200 Mexican and Mexican-American civil rights activists, all men, met to discuss organizing against racial discrimination. This was an attempt to unite the various groups across Texas and to expand. A new group emerged from this meeting called the Latin American Citizens League, or LAC. The group was also called the Mexican American Citizens League. According to Orozco, Slos Vinto's archive is the best documentation of the 1927 Harlingen Convention. Two years later, in 1929, the League of United Latin American Citizens, LULAC, formed from the merger of the Corpus Christi Council of the Sons of America, the Alice Council of the Sons of America, the Knights of America, and the Latin American Citizens League in the Valley and Laredo. LULAC's initial goals were, quote, to develop within the members of our race the best, purest, and most perfect type of a true and loyal citizen of the United States of America, and, quote, to eradicate from our body politic all intents and tendencies to establish discriminations among our fellow citizens on account of race, religion, or social position as being contrary to the true spirit of democracy, our Constitution, and laws. The 1929 LULAC Constitution established English as the official language of the organization, but the group strongly advocated for bilingualism, fighting against laws in Texas that barred the speaking of Spanish in public schools. The first president of LULAC was Ben Garza. Manuel Gonzalez was vice president. Andres de Luna was secretary. And Luis Wilmot was treasurer. The, ma the major architects of the LULAC Constitution were J.T. Canales, Eduardo Idar, and Alonzo Perales. LULAC became the first permanent organization on behalf of civil rights for Mexican-Americans. Many of its founders were veterans of World War I, and an emphasis on American citizenship was of extreme importance and contributed to one of the group's most controversial decisions, its decision to limit its membership only to citizens. This is different from past civil rights organizations that sought to garner strength from all Mexican heritage peoples. LULAC leaders feared that Mexican nationals had different political goals than citizens. Additionally, the emphasis on citizenship was a means to convince European descent Americans of Mexican Americans' worthiness of respect and equal rights within their citizenship. Many LULAC members wanted to create a distinction between recent Mexican immigrants and Mexican-American citizens, believing that Mexican-Americans would be treated better if they could distinguish themselves from the new immigrants who were often less well-educated, poorer, and did not speak English. This was changed in 1986 when LULAC membership was opened to any person living within the United States. Non-citizens were not the only Mexican heritage people excluded from LULAC in the early years. So were Mexican-American women. Now, although not explicitly banned, women were not welcomed to join LULAC 
although they were active participants in the organization from the beginning. The LULAC Constitution specifically referred to male members only. In 1932, and possibly earlier, women organized ladies' auxiliaries in Texas. Orozco questions whether these ladies' groups existed simply because the men excluded the women and were an affirmation of Lulac's masculine character, or if female segregation was a strategy of empowerment on the part of the women themselves, a la Estelle Friedman and her foundational essay, Separatism as Strategy. In 1932, two men submitted a resolution to allow women to participate and be official members of LULAC. The Supreme Council agreed that a ladies' LULAC should exist, and in 1933, women were allowed to form official councils called Ladies' LULAC. The first ladies' council was formed in Alice, Texas, and in 1934, LULAC created the Office of Ladies' Organizer General to manage the women's chapters. It wasn't until the 1950s that local LULAC chapters began to organize in sex-integrated councils. Adelis Los Vento supported LULAC and was writing about Mexican-American civil rights at the time. She was also corresponding with many of its founding members, but she never joined a ladies' LULAC council. Nevertheless, she wrote about ladies' LULAC members as women fighters. Her article in the Del Rio newspaper La Avispa, entitled Barco de Lulac, or Lulac Ship, described how the women of Lulac were moving the ship forward and fighting against segregation. Yet she never questioned the separation of the sexes nor sexism in the organization. Sloss Vento was a supporter of LULAC, advocate for LULAC, but was silent about the segregation of women within the organization. It's an irony that Orozco's book, Agent of Change, explores why didn't she join Ladies LULAC? She was actively engaged in promoting the league. She was very close to its founders, particularly to Perales, and she was engaged with the civil rights issues that LULAC was involved in. Orozco comes back to this question again and again and postulates various reasons. Perhaps Slosvento did not want to overextend herself. Perhaps as a public intellectual, she felt herself to be superior in intellect to other women in Ladies Lulac, or perhaps her work and family obligations kept her from participating. She did, you know, have toddlers after all. (laughs) Right. But regardless of why Slos Vento didn't join a ladies' LULAC council, she participated in the public intellectual conversation. Cultural scholar Homi Baba imagined a quote-unquote third space, theorizing the interstitial space between colliding cultures as a liminal space where something new and unrecognizable, a new area of negotiation of meaning and representation can be created. Feminist historian Emma Perez furthered this idea of the third space by exploring the ways in which Mexican descent women have subverted patriarchy and white supremacy in this interstitial space. Orozco argues that Slos Vento also, quote, found creative ways to participate in the male-defined Mexican-American civil rights movement and the white male-controlled democratic politics in Texas by creating and working within a third space. And I love thinking about Slos Vento in this third space way, because I think it lets us view her in a way that typically, you know, quote unquote, political actors are not viewed. Right. In. She didn't lead major organizations. She didn't run for office. She didn't organize in any large capacity with other women and clubs or organizations. Instead, she engaged in public intellectualism as her own island, writing op-eds for newspapers throughout South Texas, shooting letters off to elected officials and leaders of LULAC, all done between changing diapers and getting dinner on the table. So seeing political action in this third space or third way really lets us see politics and activism in ways that we typically don't recognize as such. Despite the fact that she is a mother and a wife and later works as a jail matron in the Hidalgo County Jail in Edinburgh, Slas Vento continues her activism mostly as a writer in her own home. She fought for decades and decades in the civil rights movement, but behind the scenes, so to speak. She's a feminist in that she's a worldly thinker, and she does not confine herself to writing about the home or women's issues, but uses her pen on behalf of La Raza while never seeking recognition for herself. 
La Raza was a popular self-referential term used by Mexicans and Mexican-Americans throughout the early to mid-20th century, which literally translate to the race. However, she also participated in the movement in more, you know, quote-unquote traditional ways as well. In the early 1940s, she helped organize an independent political club in the Valley. They aimed to help Mexican-Americans register and pay the poll tax so that they could vote. Uh, At that time, there was still a massive underrepresentation of Mexican heritage politicians in office. And so the goal was to elect more Latinos to represent them. While Slos Vento never ran for office herself, she was an active participant in some Texas political campaigns. During Lloyd Benson's 1948 congressional run, and Lloyd Benson was Michael Dukakis's running mate for vice president in the 1988 Democratic ticket, Benson actually reached out to Slos Vento in 1948 for her support because he recognized her as a political actor and an organizer in the Valley. She did not support him, however, because she saw him as aligned with exploitative agribusiness. But this is significant because politics in Texas at this time did not really include women much at all until the 1970s, at least. So it really speaks to how important that she was and how, how much of an impact she was having in this behind-the-scenes capacity. Right, absolutely. An important woman in the Mexican-American civil rights movement who was not solely acting in this third space was Alicia Dickerson Multimayor. At the height of her activism, she was a mother, a wife, a business owner, and a fierce feminist advocate for women in the civil rights movement. In 1937, Multimayor was elected to the third highest position in LULAC, a vice president general. She was the first woman elected to a national office that was not specifically designed for a woman. In her writings for LULAC News and other publications, she championed women's strength and advocated for more women to become involved in the Mexican-American civil rights movement. She urged the creation of more LULAC ladies' councils, and she pushed for more women's involvement in the organization in general. Alicia Dickerson Montemayor was born in Laredo, Texas in 1902 of mixed Irish and Tejana heritage. She grew up in a middle-class bilingual home and excelled in school and youth sports. She attended some college while she worked as a clerk for Western Union. In 1933, she became a social worker during the height of the Great Depression. Being bilingual was a great advantage, and she worked to help Mexican-Americans access welfare roles. She worked for the Department of Public Welfare in Laredo and larger Webb County. Her job took her into Catula, a city about 70 miles northeast of Laredo. The white county judge there refused to give her a key to her office because she was a Mexican quote-unquote Mexican, so she worked out on the front lawn of the county courthouse under a tree until the judge finally relented and gave her her office key. Good for her. (laughs) She continued to experience racism in her job, with white welfare recipients refusing to work with her. She encountered so much hostility, the welfare office had assigned her a bodyguard. While in Catula, Montemayor also pushed back against the practice of segregated masses at the Catholic Church, which held a 7 a.m. mass for, quote unquote, Mexicans and a 9 a.m. mass for whites. Gross. Montemayor was instrumental in starting a ladies' LULAC council in Laredo in 1936, consisting of middle class Mexican-American women. Between 1937 and 1940, she held three national LULAC positions, the previously mentioned vice president general, then associate editor of LULAC News, and the general director of Junior LULAC, the auxiliary organization for youth. During her tenure in national office, Montemayor worked diligently for more involvement of women in LULAC and the development of more ladies' councils. In the very first article she wrote for LULAC News, she stressed the need for more women's involvement in the organization, addressing Sister LULACs, noting that, quote, our brothers need a good big dose of competition. Now that our brothers have given the women a chance to show them what we can do, let all the ladies councils that are active now try and revive the dormant ladies councils and the ladies organizers and governors try and get more ladies councils to join our league 
fatigue so that we may prove to our brothers that we can accomplish more than they can. In the article Women's Opportunity in LULAC, she wrote, quote, the idea that the woman's place is in the home passed out of the picture with hoop skirts and bustles. And now it is recognized that women hold as high a position in all walks of life as do the men. She insisted women should be, quote, in that position where she can do the most for the furthering of her fellow women. In 1938, she wrote an essay called Son Muy Hombres, or They Are So Male, where she blasted the sexism of the organization. She wrote there, quote, has been some talk about suppressing the ladies' councils of our league, or at least to relegate them to the category of auxiliaries. She maintained that men, quote, fear that our women will take a leading role in the evolution of our league, that our women might make a name for themselves in their activities, that our muy hombres might be shouldered from their position as arbiters of our league. She went on to add that even if all male LULAC officers did not agree with this move, they weren't actively resisting it. Montemayor wrote more articles for LULAC News than any other woman in the organization's history. In reminiscing about her time in leadership, Montemayor said, the men just hated me. (laughs) I guess men don't think women can do anything. Montemayor left LULAC around 1940 and went on to be a celebrated folk artist. Adela Slosvento was the only other woman who wrote a feminist essay for LULAC News in the 1930s. She never commented on Montemayor's advocacy within LULAC, nor did she question the gendered segregation of the organization. Maybe this was why she never officially joined LULAC, even as she supported it in her public writings. During the 1930s, LULAC focused on getting Mexican-Americans registered to vote and concentrated on litigation to improve the conditions of Mexican-Americans, most notably school desegregation lawsuits, but also lawsuits to get Mexican-Americans admitted onto juries. As we mentioned earlier, LULAC and a few earlier Mexican-American civil rights organizations only admitted U.S. citizens. Throughout the 1920s in the Southwest, mining and agribusiness industries grew. The agricultural lobby played a large part in promoting and expanding Mexican migration into the U.S., In 1924, a very restrictive immigration act, the Johnson-Reed Act, boo, took effect. (laughs) This act severely limited the number of immigrants allowed to enter into the United States through a national origins quota. The quota provided immigration visas to 2% of the total number of people of each nationality in the United States as of the 1890 national census, meaning that the calculations used to decide on the quotas were based on numbers that included large numbers of people of West European descent whose ancestors had been part of much earlier waves of immigration. As a result, the percentage of visas available to individuals from the British Isles and Western Europe increased, but newer immigration from other places like Southern and Eastern Europe was limited. The Immigration Act of 1924 completely excluded immigrants from Asia. Because of pressure from the agricultural lobby, Mexico was exempted from these immigration quotas. And of course, just because Mexican immigration was exempted from the quotas did not tamp down white racism. One congressman complained, quote, what is the use of closing the front door to keep the undesirables from Europe when you permit Mexicans to come in here by the back door by the thousands and thousands? Yeah. So what the Immigration Act of 1924 did was create a more robust border between the U.S. and Mexico. In the early 20th century, it wasn't a crime to enter the the U.S. without authorization. The U.S. could deport unauthorized migrants, but it couldn't prosecute them. The Border Patrol was formed in 1924, initially to control the, you know, hordes of Eastern European and Chinese immigrants that the white mind feared would circumvent immigration quotas by entering the U.S. via the Mexico or the Canadian border. And so these fears created policies to implement stronger controls at both of the borders. Initially, the U.S.-Mexican Border Patrol consisted of former cowboys and small ranchers. Uh, Most were young men and had military experience. 
According to historian May Nguy, many had ties to the Ku Klux Klan. One Border Patrol agent said that their training consisted of, quote, they just give you a 45 single-action revolver with a web belt, and that was it. During the late 1920s, the number of deportations of Mexican immigrants who had not attained a visa rose from 1,751 in 1925 to over 15,000 in 1929. The Border Patrol started enacting sweeps and stopping Mexican laborers on roads and farms, resulting in a Los Angeles Spanish-language newspaper uh, to proclaim that the aggression would, quote, de-Mexicanize Southern California. And remember, too, that there were many people that lived in border towns where one half of the city was on the U.S. side and one half was on the Mexican side. Laredo is one. Like You have Laredo and Nuevo Laredo or El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. These are cities that cross over the border. There were and are people in these towns who cross into the United States for day labor or people traveling as temporary visitors or migrants working for just an agricultural season. So these were varying types of legal entry that Mexican citizens might have while traveling in the United States, making Border Patrol and U.S. immigration agents cast more suspicion on Mexican workers and travelers. So although Mexican nationals did not face the quota, they had to pass certain entry requirements, such as a head tax and a visa fee, which pushed some to avoid legal immigration into the United States. Inspections of immigrants at the Mexican border now included bathing, delousing, and a medical inspection. And to put this into perspective, U.S. immigration officials had stopped doing those kinds of inspections and delousings at uh, Ellis Island just a few years before. Uh, European and Mexican immigrants who arrived on first-class trains were actually allowed to forego these humiliating inspections. And so this was a way to police the bodies of poor and working-class immigrants, making some actively work to circumvent these fees and inspections. In 1929, Congress passed the Immigration Act, making it a crime for some people to cross the border. Unlawful entry into the United States could result in fines and prison time. Historian Kelly Lytle Hernandez finds evidence that although this law applied to all immigrants, its intent was to control immigration from Mexico. Those that were prosecuted for crossing the border throughout the 1930s were over 80% Mexican nationals. This law, which created the quote unquote illegal alien, further spurred discrimination against Mexican immigrants and spurred the pejorative term wetback, which referred to illegal border crossers. During the 1940s and 50s, agribusiness expanded with the aid of the Bracero Program. This was an agreement between Mexico and the United States during the years 1942 to 1964 that encouraged Mexican manual laborers to work in the United States. During the 1940s, the U.S. was still recovering from the Great Depression, while also sending many of its potential laborers off to war in Europe. And so the idea was that Braceros would come to the U.S. to temporarily work. In the first year, about 215,000 Braceros came to work for agribusiness, while another 75,000 went to work on the Southern Pacific Railroad, uh, along with 20 other or so railroads. The program lasted until 1964, and during this period, approximately 4.6 million Mexican nationals came to work in the U.S. as Braceros. However, the Bracero program was a means by which agribusiness could exploit the labor of Mexican immigrants. In exchange for their labor, they were supposedly guaranteed a minimum wage of 30 cents an hour during the 1940s and 50 cents an hour during most of the 1950s. They were also guaranteed proper shelter, water and food, sanitation, full repatriation to Mexico, and guaranteed work for 75% of their contract period. But despite all of these protections that Mexican workers were supposed to have, many Braceros faced an array of injustices and abuses. Mexico blacklisted the state of Texas from the Bracero program in 1943 because of the exploitative employment practices of Texas agriculture businesses. LULAC played a major role in highlighting these abuses and the banning of Braceros in Texas for a time because of these abuses. 
However, this resulted in Texas growers bypassing the Bracero program and hiring farm workers directly from Mexico for lower pay and off the books, so to speak, regarding immigration status, fueling the so-called and again derogatorily named wetback problem. Approximately 2 million Mexican men entered the United States as legal braceros, but many others, particularly those family groups of women and children who were excluded from the program, entered the U.S. quote-unquote illegally. Also, low wages in the official bracero program pushed some laborers to seek unauthorized work in the attempt to earn higher wages. That makes my head want to explode. Like, so, I mean, I should not be surprised in any way, shape, or form, and I, you know, to a certain extent knew some of this stuff, but it's so infuriating that the immigration crisis was one that was, like, created by, yeah, created by Americans at every turn. Right. By capitalists. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So Adelis Los Vinto took up the issue of the exploitation of Bracero labor. In 1947, she wrote a critique of the program in the Harlingen Star newspaper, arguing that the, quote, the wetback cheap labor is not only a threat to the economic welfare of our lower and middle classes, but also to our influential chambers of commerce. Elsewhere, she wrote Mexican immigrants, quote, worked for 75 cents or a dollar a day. Later, they were paid 20 cents an hour. In later years, some earned $3 a day to operate a tractor. These were starvation wages. So her basic premise was that the low wages that Braceros and Mexican immigrants accepted ended up driving down the wages for Mexican-American citizens. In a letter, she complained that Mexican-Americans were, quote, forced to leave home in the valley by the hundreds every year to harvest the crops of the northern states where they can get better wages. In a letter to the editor of the Valley Evening Monitor entitled Cheap Labor Does Not Pay in the Long Run, she wrote, quote, Cheap labor ruins the health of workers, of their wives and children. It deprives the children from obtaining an education. Slos Vinto used the derogatory terms illegal and wetback to differentiate between Mexican-American citizens and immigrant laborers. She wanted Mexico and the U.S. to work harder to stop the flow of unsanctioned immigration, while she also wanted the exploitation of Mexican immigrants by U.S. agribusiness to stop. In 1949, Slos Vento began her employment at the Hidalgo Jail in Edinburgh. There, she witnessed firsthand how the Bracero program and immigration impacted the valley. The Bracero program brought many Mexican nationals into the valley, including women. She was hired as a warden of women, a position created because many immigrant women were being detained. The Hidalgo County Jail had about 700 inmates during the so-called wetback lift, an operation in the early 1950s to return unauthorized immigrants to Mexico. Historian Kelly Lytle Hernandez highlights how the Bracero program, quote, ignored the possibility that Mexican women, children, and family groups would also participate in labor migration to the United States. She argues that the Bracero program created a gendered two-tier system of labor migration to the U.S. She says, quote, the Bracero era was a crucial period during which millions of husbands, sons, brothers, and fathers were lifted into legal streams of migration, while women, children, and families were left across the border without sanction. In 1953, the El Paso Border Patrol reported that 60% of all apprehensions in the region were of women and children. In 1954, the U.S. government deployed Operation Wetback, which officially entailed the removal of some authorized immigrants by the government. This was a quasi-military operation headed by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, or the INS, and aided by local authorities and the military, with the intent to search out and remove unauthorized immigrants. On July 15th, the first day of operations, over 4,800 men, women, and children were arrested and deported. The operation lasted through the summer and into the fall when funding ran out. The INS reported that 1.3 million people were apprehended in the program, but official numbers do not support that total. 
Various Mexican-American organizations and individuals opposed the Bracero program or any form of temporary labor in the United States and supported campaigns like Operation Wetback. The American GI Forum, a civil rights organization made up of Mexican-American veterans, and the Texas State Federation of Labor, the AFL, co-produced an investigative study that examined the issue of quote-unquote illegal labor and the Bracero program in Texas. This study, entitled What Price Wetbacks?, stated that undocumented workers and official Braceros displaced U.S. workers. Uh, George I. Sanchez, a past LULAC president and UT Austin professor, referred to wetbacks as a quote-unquote serious problem and noted that, quote, Spanish-speaking Texans were being displaced. Gus Garcia of San Antonio, an important member of LULAC and the American GI Forum, as well as an attorney who was integral in Mexican-American school desegregation cases, commented on Bracero labor saying, quote, Thousands upon thousands of South Texas families will continue to be uprooted year after year from their homes and forced to wander about the country seeking a living or at least a subsistence wage. The Texas Congress of Industrial Organizations Latin American Committee praised the INS for tightening the border during Operation Wetback, but they deplored the aggressive tactics of INS agents, such as using dogs to track down migrants. Do it, just do it a little more nicely. Right. In her position at the Lago County Jail, Slosvento experienced firsthand these aggressive deportation methods. She wrote about the state of many women who wound up in her jail. She wrote, quote, what could I do? I gave them the funds so that they could return to their families. I did not have the heart to see a near cadaver without funds return to Mexico. I gave her the funds to return home. And so we can see in Slas Vinto's writing that even Mexican-Americans who were against undocumented immigration and the Bracero program were against it on humanitarian grounds. Hernandez calls this a Faustian bargain, however, citing Eduardo Adar Jr. speaking to the American GI Forum uh, when he said that, quote, there may be occasions when some of our legal residents and American citizens may be asked to present identification. Our people must be made to realize that the officers not only will be discharging a duty imposed on them by law, but the successful discharge of that duty in cleaning out the wetbacks will react to the betterment of employment and economic opportunities for our people. And so Hernandez characterizes this you know, bargain as Mexican-Americans having to accept the surveillance and suspicions of Border Patrol officers with the promise that, you know, quote, full incorporation into the American dream was just around the bend, if only they could sacrifice a bit to get there. LULAC members supported American institutions, political philosophy, and capitalism, but they protested the discrimination that prevented their full participation. Past support by LULAC and the American GI Forum for programs like Operation Wetback and increased INS and border control has opened historical actors like LULAC up to scrutiny. A lot of the earlier scholarship on LULAC was written starting in the late 1970s by scholars who were or who had been part of the Chicano movement. Their view of LULAC was one of middle-class accommodationists, which is a fair assessment in many ways. Rather than challenging American racial hierarchies, particularly the black-white divide, many Mexican-American political leaders worked to construct themselves as Spanish and therefore, quote-unquote, white. Many school desegregation cases were based on this argument. Chicano activist historians loathed what they saw as a middle-class assimilationist and accommodationist movement. And can I um, just say that I think in the episode that I just did on racial passing, I talked about a couple of people who passed themselves off, who were, who were African-American, but who passed themselves off as either Spanish or Cuban to kind of mm-hmm. use this same kind of argument that that, that meant right. that they were not of color. Right, that they were European. Mm. Right. 
Later scholarship, most notably by Cynthia Orozco and others, has taken a new look at LULAC without viewing this early civil rights organization through the lens of the Chicano movement. Orozco argues that only recently have historians addressed LULAC within the historical context of the 1920s, eschewing the, quote, idealized, romanticized, and essentialized La Raza in the working class that earlier historians had viewed the organization. Orozco argues that scholarship did not, quote, fully comprehend the meaning or spectrum of resistance to racism. Instead, the Mexican-American civil rights movement, organizations like LULAC, and individuals like Adela Slas Vento need to be studied with an eye towards the, quote, multiple shifting, intersecting, and contradictory identities mm-hmm. that arise in the face of changing historical circumstances and specific situation and context. So, In writing this episode, I wanted to kind of do a few things. I I wanted to highlight Orozco's new book about Adelis Los Vento, Agent of Change, while also giving a bit of a history on the Mexican-American civil rights movement. And so I think now is probably a good time to pose the question, why does learning about Los Vento matter, right? Los Vento did not join LULAC, yet she was integral to its founding, Uh, She did not serve in any official leadership capacity, yet she was definitely a leader, right? And so I appreciated learning about her more because it's a lesson in reevaluating or questioning who is quote-unquote important or worthy of historical study. I'm going to share a long quote from Orozco here because she lays out how historical actors become overlooked. Quote, Until recently, most scholars have not known of Slos Vento, despite her self-published 1977 book. However, in 1979, Martha Cotera, a Chicana librarian and historian who began writing in the 1970s, contacted Slos Vento about her papers. She responded but remained mute about her archive and discussed only Paralis with Cotera. The Rio Writer's Book, 100 Women of the Rio Grande Valley, published in 1983, should have included Slos Vento, but missed her. Jose Angel Gutierrez, Michelle Melendez, and Sonia Noyola's book, Chicanas in Charge, on trailblazing political Tejanas, missed her. Slos Vento had even mailed a copy of her book to Gutierrez, a leader of the Texas Chicano movement, but he ignored her. Likewise, Francisco Arturo Rosales did not include her in his works on the Mexican-American civil rights movement, nor did Matt Meyer and Margot Gutierrez on their encyclopedia of the movement. Why is she unknown, forgotten, and ignored even after writing a book? Or has she been silenced, as suggested by the literary scholar Laura Garza? And so again, this brings up the question of importance, right? Slos Vento was a female. She was a non-college educated Mexican-American woman acting as a public intellectual. She held no official titles like doctor or esquire. She didn't have the freedom of movement that middle-class men had. She was a working-class woman who was also a mother, a wife, and who worked outside of the home. She was writing in the valley. She was writing in various newspapers intermittently, and she was writing in both Spanish and English. And so this makes it very hard to kind of see her overall collective contribution. In fact, it was only with the visibility of the Perales archives, coupled with her own, that Orozco was able to grasp how significant Slas Vento was as a public intellectual to Latinx heritage. Scholar Donna Coblin de Bashara argues that Slas Vento's Quote, active writing can be seen as an attempt to contest the limits imposed on the speech act of women at the beginning of the 20th century. And I have to agree. And I think that thinking about Slas Vento in this third space is a great way to understand her contribution to women's rights and to Mexican heritage civil rights. In fact, I mean, for me, at least, one of the most fascinating things about Slos Vento was her dedication to preserving all of this history, right? When 
she knew that she was dying, she made sure to lock all of her archival materials in a chest to preserve them. She understood the value and the importance of the work of all of these activists, what they were doing for the Mexican-American civil rights. She spent the last years of her life working to preserve Mexican-American history and to raise Alonzo Perales to the level of remembrance that she felt that he deserved. She wrote the first biography about him and spent immeasurable time trying to get statues of him erected and schools named after him. Yet she never sought out any recognition for her own accomplishments, only worked to build up other movement leaders. This, again, is a reason that she is overshadowed in the historical literature. So at the end of the day, this is really a call to historians to be responsive to women, particularly historical actors who are navigating this third space. And we also have to listen to the silences, so to speak. Uh, Orozco speaks to this in her first book, No Mexicans, Women, or Dogs Allowed, when she states, quote, Historians have assumed that because men founded LULAC, gender as a tool of analysis is of use only when women became members in 1933. Men in the OSA and LULAC, however, lived gendered lives and had various gender ideologies about men's and women's political participation. And so essentially she's saying that a gendered analysis of something doesn't have to happen only when women are involved or trans people are involved, right? Men are gendered too. And if an organization looks completely male, is it really? Slas Vinto shows how the male-dominated early days of LULAC were in fact not what they appeared to right. be. Yeah. Right? It, and it calls to mind, you know, so many movements have been supported by women who did work like Slas Vento, right? The the kind of support work, behind the scenes work, even if it was things like making sure people were fed, right? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, there's tons of uh, histories about the women doing the work, right? Mm-hmm. So like uh um Evelyn uh Brooks Higginbotham's uh what is it? Righteous discontent mm-hmm. uh you know, basically tracking the importance of African-American women to kind of the early, uh, early, early civil right. rights movement and uh, movements in the, the AME church, right? How like all of this work, work is really, you know, done by the fir- footwork of women, right? Yeah. And so like later histories about even the KKK, right? I think Linda right. Gordon has a new book out about mm-hmm. uh, the KKK and, you know, how it's, it's, it's seen as a male organization, but, you know, women are the ones who are, you know, organizing yep, the potlucks yep. and, you know, doing the telephone trees to get people to the rallies and this, mm-hmm. that and the other. Right. And yeah. So, making all of that know, possible. Yeah. Making that possible. Right. So there is a lot of uh, scholarship out there that 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 this Agent of Change book kind of adds to 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 helping us see the overlooked uh, contributions of of women to these organizations. Yeah. Yeah, It's a really, like you said, it's a really important contribution, not just in telling her story, but also reminding us that these, these stories of people who um, were not necessarily out in public all the time or holding leadership positions are still really critical to understanding how these movements worked. Right. Absolutely. So that's it for today. Special thanks to Cynthia Roscoe and the University of Texas Press, my alma mater, for sending me a copy of Agent of Change. Yeah. And make sure that you follow us on Twitter and Facebook at dig underscore podcast. Um, you can, of course, check out our cool swag on Tee Public. Lots of designs created by Averill herself. And visit us at digpodcast.org for show notes and further reading and for ideas of how to use our podcasts in the classroom. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. She did not support him, however, because she saw him as aligned with exploitive agri- and spurred the pejorative pejorative <laughs> <laughs> to sue European Americans in court aka 
Okay, never mind, I'm not going to say that. 1938 and a son, Arnoldo, in 1939. The family Arnold. moved to Corp... Ronaldo? Arnoldo. Arnoldo. What did I say? Ronaldo. <laughs> Ar- I don't know. You said... Ro- You'll have Ronaldo. to say his name a couple of times. Otherwise, I wouldn't have. I don't know how... Correct. It's okay. Arnoldo. Arnoldo. That's really weird. I said Ronaldo. I think I said Ronaldo. <laughs> Okay, sorry. I don't know why I think that's so funny. She had a daughter, Irma, in 1938, and a son, Arnoldo. Arnoldo? Am I saying it right? I mean, yes, it's Arnoldo. That's what I'm saying is Arnoldo. Okay, Arnoldo. Arnold O. Yeah. Arnoldo. Arnoldo. But also to our influential that word influential but also to our influential shape <laughs> oh sorry distracted by a text message from marissa <laughs> when you mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.